0: Good evening and welcome. What a joy it is to see so many of you, so many familiar faces, and so many that we haven't seen in some time. This is the easily the uh, largest crowd we've had in two years, so it is just it, it just brings me joy that things are returning. My name is Jamie Boskett, and I have the distinct privilege of serving as President and CEO here of the VMHC. And on behalf of our Board of Trustees and our staff, it is my uh, pleasure to welcome you to the 15th Annual Stuart G. Christian, Jr. Lecture. Before I introduce tonight's speaker, I'd like to take just a moment to remind you of our next exciting evening lecture to come. That lecture will take place here in the Robbins Family Forum at 5.30 on July 20th. That night, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and scholar of the revolutionary era, Joseph Ellis will be with us to speak on the topic of his latest book, The Cause. Uh, So I give you fair warning on that one because I think it will be a popular ticket just as tonight's lecture is. Of course, that's July 20th and we have just a a few things happening between now and then. (laughs) If you didn't notice or if you haven't heard, uh, we are in the midst of one of the most extensive renovations in our very long nearly 200-year history and it is all coming to a head thankfully uh, thankfully it is coming to a head and we are nearly finished we will have our grand reopening to the public on May 14th and 15th so process that for a second process what you saw and that this is going to happen on May 14th and 15th with preview events for for all of you our members in advance of that you can probably tell why there's some dark bags under my eyes we'll need every day and every night uh, but we will get there and it is going to be absolutely thrilling to showcase to you your reimagined history museum. Uh, We have put everything we've got into this, and with your help and support, I think you'll be particularly proud of the way that we can bring forward the rich history of this Commonwealth in in exciting and compelling ways to, to attract ever more people to this important institution. So thank you for that. Tonight's lecture is named in honor and in memory of Stuart G. Christian, Jr. known to so many of you as Punky. Punky Christian's service to his country as a decorated combat veteran of World War II and to his community as a business executive and civil leader is certainly well known and and deeply appreciated. Twice wounded in Normandy, he returned home and helped build post-war Virginia. And his service, it should be noted, his service to this institution spanned many, many years as trustee, as board president, as honorary vice chairman. He gave leadership, energy, generosity, and as I'm told, his own very special brand of persistence. We celebrate Punky as well, of his, as, well, as, excuse me, as, well as his wife, Peggy, uh, with this lecture named in his honor. We express our deep gratitude to their children, and I'm delighted that we have some family members here with us this evening. And if we could, let's just give them a round of applause in honor of the parents. <laughs> and almost as if it was on cue, this is the point where I'd like to remind everyone to please take a moment and check your cell phones to make sure that we've silenced any noise-making devices. Dr. James Horn, Jim Horn, is president of the Jamestown Rediscovery Foundation at Historic Jamestown, the original site of the first permanent English colony in America. Previously, he served as vice president of research and historical interpretation at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. He was the Saunders director of the International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello, and before that, taught for 20 years at the University of Brighton, England. He has held fellowships at the Johns Hopkins University, the College of William and Mary, Harvard, and is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. I'm uh, pleased to note that he is of course a very dear friend of this museum, having served both on our advisory committee for all the great work done in 2019, including our determined exhibition, and also more recently serving as one of the I would say, most influential advisors in some of the work we're doing in reimagining this museum, specifically our new orientation film, Imagine Virginia, which will debut in the theater in, what, May 14th. Uh, so we, we thank Jim and, 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 of course, on a personal note, just as a, as a friend and as a, a role model in this field, it's, I've greatly appreciated the time we've gotten to spend together. Jim is a, a leading expert on early Virginia. He's the author of numerous articles and books, including A Land as God Made It, Jamestown and the Birth of America, A Kingdom Strange, The Brief and Tragic History of the Lost Colony of Roanoke, 1619, Jamestown and the Forging of American Democracy, and the subject of this evening's lecture, A Brave and Cunning Prince, which was published just this last fall. Now before we bring James forward, and I promise I will not belabor this, but I have a, a small surprise, something he's not expecting. Uh, As many of you know, through tradition and through previous evenings together, through a generous bequest, the Historical Society has long conferred the annual Richard Slatton Award for Excellence in Virginia Biography. This also, of course, comes with a cash prize. The honor uh, of this award goes to a person whose work made the most significant contribution to biographical study in the field of Virginia, and I am so very pleased to tell you this is the surprise, Jim, that the committee here at the VMHC has unanimously selected your book, A Brave and Cunning Prince, the subject of tonight's lecture, as the recipient of the Richard Slatton Award for 2021. Congratulations. (laughs) And I've even come prepared with a certificate and your cash reward. Please, if you will, join me uh, in welcoming Jim Horn to the stage for this wonderful lecture and congratulating the now even more award-winning historian. Thank you all for being here.
1: Congratulations. Thank you. That's lovely. Thank
0: you.
1: Okay, that really um, that really did come as a surprise. So uh, I'm very grateful to uh, to the museum, and I should say this is one of my favorite venues um, to, to speak. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely uh, theater in which to, to give presentations, um, but also because I really am a, a, can you hear me? Okay, no. Okay, let's try that. We've got uh, sound checks and I'll stop mumbling. There we are. Um, so um, I, I am a great admirer of the leadership here. You okay? Okay at the back. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, um, it's, uh, it's, it's really quite something and I'm astounded at the progress. Okay, so I, I'm afraid I can't do anything other than, I can shout at you, if <laughs> you we'll, we'll turn it up a bit. Okay, how's that? Is that better? Yeah, okay. Good, all oh, right um, for disclosure I'm not an expert on Algonquian pronunciation um, and of course given my own language uh, at least the one I was born with um, I shouldn't be an expert on any kind of pronunciation in this country but um, I do I, I do pronounce um, uh, the, the name I do pronounce it as Opikankano. Now, there are those of you that would like perhaps to pronounce it Opikankano, and that's fine too. It's a lost language, and uh, sadly. Um, But Opikankano is is how I'm gonna pronounce it. So I'm gonna talk, first of all, in, in the first section about um, 1622 and uh, the great attack so i'm just going to run through this many of you will be familiar with it um, but i just want to run through pretty quickly just just to give those of you that aren't so familiar uh, a sense of uh, what took place in the early light of dawn on march 22nd 1622 400 years ago Groups of Powhatan Indians gathered in woods near English settlements. At round about eight o'clock, they began moving towards the plantations that they'd known uh, for many years from from trading with the colonists. They were known to the families that farmed and lived there. And they didn't hurry. Uh, They walked quite casually because it was meant to appear like any other morning. But this wasn't any other morning. And once they were inside the settlers' houses and yards and fields, the killing began. Far up river, uh, these scenes of killing were uh, repeated at farmsteads, plantations and industrial sites. This is Falling Creek, the, the large ironworks built by investors of the Virginia Company of London, which sponsored the colony as a whole. And it was built at great expense. It was totally, it was totally destroyed. uh, And the workers, all of the workers were killed. Now in the uh, right hand corner at the bottom, uh, you may just be able to make out a child uh, hiding in the thickets along by the creek, there, uh, and uh, yeah, it took me a while to, to see that. Actually, this is a wonderful painting by the great uh, artist Sidney King. And actually, just out of frame, there's uh, there's another child, a, a, a small girl, also hiding from the warriors. Of the twenty nine men, women, and children, they, they were the only two survivors of, of the attack on Falling Creek, which of course you'll still see named, um, perhaps rather incongruously, up by um, Stony Point, the uh, shopping mall. A few miles downriver near Himraiko, warriors attacked the hated Indian college that the English hoped would eventually provide a Christian education for young Indian men who would then go among their own people Uh, to spread the holy word. The building was still in construction and again was completely destroyed. And most of the tenants, if not all of them, and the workers there died during that attack. In fact, from the Appomattox River to the Chickahominy, 140 settlers perished that day, including men and women at this plantation I pronounce Berkeley from uh, Berkeley, Gloucestershire, uh, the sponsors of this plantation at uh, Berkeley 100, where Captain George Thorpe resided. Captain George Thorpe, we actually have him down at Jamestown occasionally, so you can meet him there. But he'd been involved in close negotiations with Opie Kankano for more than a year in an effort to convert the chief and thereby the entire Tyre Powhatan chiefdom to the Church of England. According to contemporary descriptions, on the morning of March 22nd, Thorpe walked out to greet the the Indians and to talk to them. He couldn't believe the plantation was under attack and he ended up um, dying by the side of 10 of his compatriots. This might be an image you are uh, familiar with. It's from 1628. So it's pretty close to the time period itself. And it emphasizes the brutal hand-to-hand fighting and killing of settlers with their own tools and weapons. Some of whom, the settlers that is, uh, were still at table at breakfast. The English were completely taken by surprise echoing a description of the time that mentioned that the attack was so swift that few or none of the victims saw the weapon that brought about their destruction the image also makes clear that warriors killed men women and children and you can see that there's a scene in the center of of this uh, uh, engraving that shows a mother trying to fend off warriors and protect her child now, in the background is a place that may look a little bit unfamiliar to you. Um, it meant to be Jamestown, but it's portrayed here as a European walled city. Um, I can assure you it isn't, because we haven't found anything like that at, at Jamestown. But the point to note is there's an attack from the river by Powhatan warriors in four war canoes. I was so... Uh, Intrigued by this, that um, I had uh, a, a new painting commissioned by um, a, a really tremendous artist who uh, is portraying here the gunners of the eastern bulwark of James Fort um, uh, trying to fend off the, uh, the warriors. And I also put in, uh, wanted to have put in, smoke from the burning plantations drifting across, shrouding the horizon to capture some of the drama of that morning. Now, of course, Jamestown was a significant target, and Opikankano's plan probably included an attack from the land as well as from the river. If so, it's probably the first amphibious attack on any English settlement. I can say that with some confidence because the English had only been there 15 years, so it's it's not um, a, a, a great leap, but but it is uh, but it is interesting to show the variety of approaches that the Powhatan warriors took. Now, if Opikankano had been able to destroy Jamestown, I think it's most likely that the colony itself would have failed. Uh, I think strategically and symbolically the end of Jamestown either the killing or the capture of the colony's leaders uh, would have been fatal. I doubt if the English would have recovered from from that. Farther down river, Martin's 100 um, sustained the heaviest losses of any plantation. 77 people were killed in that one day nine family groups. And what you're seeing here is Warston hometown, the main settlement, which was burned to the ground, only a few houses and pieces of the church left standing. Equally across the river at Edward Bennett's plantation, a cluster of settlements there also suffered heavy losses in the 50s were killed. To maximize the element of surprise, The attack was planned to be simultaneous so this isn't a rolling attack going if you like from Falling Creek or all the way down the James River Valley these attacks are taking simultaneously by different groups of warriors from different tribes and it appears that initially local warriors uh, were engaged to make the first assault because they knew the settlers. They could get inside the settlements and farmsteads. But then groups of elite warriors followed up to, dis- to destroy any survivors, any property, uh, and also the buildings themselves. Uh, point I'm emphasizing here, and you can see it in this image, uh, is that um, there's an enormous amount of destruction um, taking place during the day in fact a bird's-eye view and I wish I had one to show you so but I don't so all I can do is give you a sense of the scale from Falling Creek which is that little red dot if you can see a little red dot at the top of the image in the middle that's Falling Creek I'm probably just a little ways off that but that's the best I can do with this image and then down to Mulberry Island south of Jamestown uh, and then across the river on the south side of the James at Waris Koyak, Edward Bennett's. This is the scale of it, probably 50 miles on both sides of the rivers, uh, both sides of the river, the attack took place. By the end of the day, and this is a staggering figure, given that the total population of the colony at this time in 1622 was probably no more than about uh, 12, 1,250, By the end of the day, 350 settlers had perished. And of course, there was also um, a great deal of of destruction. So that's uh, somewhere around a quarter to a third of the entire colony. I think it's one of the greatest losses in terms of percentage of uh, inhabitants that the English ever sustained in any colony. So from Opikankano's perspective, the attack was a brilliant, brilliant success. And so much so that a couple of months later, he confidently predicted that within two months, within a couple of months, there would not be a settler left in his domains. Even English commentators were impressed by the chief's strategy and by the skill with which it was carried out. It was unwise, if it's unwise to overestimate an enemy, George Wyatt, the the father of uh, the governor Sir Francis Wyatt, this is what he noted, if it's unwise to overestimate an enemy, it was equally unwise to underestimate him. Be wary, he said, of the pawn mate, chess move, pawn mate whereby defeat comes from the least expected quarter. Critical to Opie success were the multiple alliances he had built over the previous seven years with tribes along both sides of the James and the York rivers. Probably well over a thousand Powhatan warriors took part together with two to 300 allies, mercenaries all achieved and this is truly remarkable all achieved apart from jamestown in secrecy so that only on the day of the attack did the english realize the scale of the disaster that had befallen them however Opikankano was a little uh, a little over optimistic in assuming the english would abandon the colony too much blood and treasure had been expended over the the previous years. So their response was far from moving settlers out of the colony was actually to send more and more colonists into the colony. And this led to an even worse situation in the harrowing winter of 1622-23. Disastrous food shortages, continuing powhatan attacks and disease led to hundreds of english dying in terrible conditions throughout the colony but particularly at jamestown so many succumbed one eyewitness said that the living couldn't bury the dead those who died were left where they fell and we've got contemporary accounts of this in their houses by the roadside In ditches and under hedgerows and we've also discovered at Jamestown some of the mass burial grounds from this from this period as it turned out the war dragged on for the best part of a decade both sides adopting tactics of extreme violence as well as hit-and-run attacks designed to maximise terror. You could call it strategies of fear. No one knew when the next attack would come or from what quarter. But why? Why did Opie decide to launch a massive attack after years of seeming peace and harmony? And in hindsight, the reasons aren't hard to find. An earlier war, of 1609 to 1614 had ravaged the James River Valley, resulting in the death or displacement of hundreds of Indian peoples. While the end of hostilities, symbolized by the marriage of Pocahontas, and you knew I'd mention Pocahontas at some point, but I think it's legitimate in this case, symbolized by her marriage to John Rolfe, that was viewed by the English as bringing about a mutually agreed peace as bringing about a union of the two peoples. The Powhatans, the Powhatans, however, viewed the war as a disaster, unmitigated disaster, that had resulted in the entrenchment of settlers in the very heartland of their chiefdom. And worse was to follow. The rapid expansion of tobacco cultivation along the James River after 1616 that led settlers to take up prime Indian lands. The new new arrivals who began flooding into the colony once the commercial success of tobacco seemed assured. And they brought in their wake, of course, deadly old world pathogens that spread amongst Indian and actually amongst English communities alike. Many of them coming out of London, of course. So these reasons, uh, oops, I've given the game away, <laughs> just to just erase that, but these reasons might appear in themselves, of course, to be sufficient. But I believe there is much, much more to the attack, to the 1622 attack, and the motivations of Opie Kankano. And to better understand this, we need to change gear, we need to... And here we are changing gear we need to drop back 60 years to uh, consider the extraordinary story of an Indian youth named Pakikaneo. so we're in 1561 and I'm, I apologize for jumping around periods here but but um, bear with me and it was in the summer of 1561, that Captain Antonio Velazquez rediscovered the Chesapeake Bay for Spain. Few Spanish ships, if any, had ventured that far north that far north along the mid-Atlantic, at any rate, since the mid-1520s. So there had been a hiatus of about um, pretty much 35, 40 years. Caught in a great storm, his ship had been driven into the bay where he decided to explore the rivers and survey the land. Possibly somewhere near the confluence of the James River and the Chickahominy, a young Indian, probably about 15 years old, and his companion were enticed aboard the Spanish ship. And within a few days, Velazquez took the decision to set sail for Spain. He was convinced that King Philip II would be most interested to hear about the boy, and even more interested to meet the. Uh, sorry, it would be most interested to hear about the bay, and even more interested to meet the princely young Indian who was believed to be either the brother or son of a great chief of the region. Pachacutec was taken to Seville. Spain's major Atlantic port in the, in the 16th century, where his name is uh, was listed by a clerk of the House of Trade, the Great House of Trade there. And this is the only known um, record of of his name, Pachicaneo. From there, he and the captain, Captain Valethqueth, made their long journey northwards to Madrid and they arrived there in the fall of 1561 this is where the king held his court in the city's great fortress palace the Alcazar I don't know if I've got that right pronunciation but there is the Alcazar in the middle of of that image and it actually I've just got it here on this little uh, laptop but on your screen it looks glorious still there of course Somewhat rebuilt. And I think it's worthwhile pausing at this point to just consider the nature of this first meeting, this first audience that took place between King Philip and the boy Pachyconeo. On the one hand, here was Philip II. This is him about the time he met Pachyconeo. I like to, to visualize what that would have been like. He's, he's in his thirties at this point, 1560. He is the lord of an enormous and rapidly expanding empire, the greatest power in Europe, ruler of va- vast domains in America. And then, on the other hand, you have Pacicaneo taken from the fringes of the known world, known to Europeans, only just beginning to learn Spanish and struggling to come to terms with the vastly different world he had abruptly entered against his will. The boy would have met leading figures of Philip's court, great statesmen, aristocrats, prelates of the Catholic church, and other important religious figures, including Bartolome de las Casas, the famous Dominican advocate, of American Indian peoples who was in Madrid at that time. Got no record of that, but they were right there uh, at the same time. In succeeding months, Pachecineo clearly made a strong impression on the king. And as a token of his royal favor, Philip bestowed upon him the name Don Luis de Velasco, which was the name of the Viceroy of New Spain. This is very significant. This, this effectively made the Viceroy of New Spain the patron and godfather uh, of, of Pachicaneo. It's an honor you don't, you don't um, find with other Indians taken to Europe. In the spring of 1562, so March or so through to May, Philip agreed to return Don Luis, and I'm gonna call him Don Luis from now on. Um, Philip agreed to return him to his homeland to assist with the holy task of converting his people, the Powhatan, to Catholicism. A mission uh, that would be the prelude to Spanish settlement in the region. The plan was to sail with the Indies fleet to the major port of San Juan de Ulua in the Gulf of Mexico, and then take a small ship to the Chesapeake in the company of a couple of Dominicans. But in a radical change, Don Luis was instead taken to Mexico City to meet his namesake and patron, the Viceroy. Uh, This map is, um, for those of you that may not have encountered this map from the mid 16th century, the Santa Cruz map is um, just truly remarkable in its detail. And to show you that, this is the area where Pacacaneo Don Luis lived at the Dominican friary of Santo Domingo, very close to the great central plaza of Mexico City, um, which had formerly, of course, been the major meeting place for rituals by the Aztec or Mexico. He remained in the city for four years, and his journey to the city and the time he spent there must have been formative years in his life. At the convent, uh, Don Luis friary, at the convent, Don Luis had time to reflect on his experiences in Spain and traveling so far around the Spanish Atlantic. He had seen huge numbers of people in Spain's cities, the great ships with their tremendous firepower, the weaponry and armor of soldiers, and witnessed the enormous influence of the Catholic Church. From his dealings with Indian peoples in Mexico City he may have learned something of the conquest by Hernan Cortes 40 years earlier and the fall of the Aztec Empire and what subjugation looked like for Indians thereafter in Mexico he saw what defeat looked like and he looked it in the face Now, it's quite possible that Don Luis would have remained in Mexico City for the rest of his life, had it not been for this man. This is Don Pedro Menendez, and he was governor of Cuba and Florida by 1566. He was the crucial figure in returning the Indian, Don Luis, to his homeland a few years later. The governor's ardent desire to found a Jesuit college in Havana for the instruction of Indian youth, particularly sons of Florida chiefs, together with his ambition to expand Spanish territories northwards to the Chesapeake Bay was the catalyst for this initiative. Don Luis was given the role of guiding a group of eight Jesuits and a boy, novice called Alonso, to the bay where he would help lead the effort to convert his people and in the summer of 1570 the ship a caravel the workhorse of the spanish atlantic set out from havana and entered the chesapeake bay in late august i'm rather proud of this slide because i wanted to make it clear that the caravel this is what it looks like um, square rigged and um, so we've got that um, there on the right side of the image. Um, the Jesuit um, source materials that tell us about this voyage indicate the route that they took, but the conventional wisdom, uh, which of course I am not um, following, it is that um, the Jesuits landed at College Creek near near fairly close to, to where Jamestown is, went across the peninsula to the York River. I dismissed that for reasons I'm not going to tell you yet, uh, unless you ask me, um, and went up to the Chickahominy, to the confluence of the James and the Chickahominy, and then further up to a place which uh, I believe is called Diascund, Um Reservoir, <laughs> seemingly. Um, rather modest name for the place where probably that Jesuit mission was, was, was actually founded. So, continuing inland, the Jesuits made their way to this area, indicated on the map, that was also dangerously isolated. There are no soldiers with this group. It's just the fathers themselves, the brothers and the novice Alonso. One contemporary described the area as far distant from the sea and any human protection. And here they built a small mission house, and it was there five months later in early February um, that Don Louis led a war party um, and wiped out that mission. He had uh, shortly after arriving at uh, at this uh, mission, uh, this location of the mission, he abandoned the Jesuits and returned to his people. And then when he came back, besides the bows and arrows that the war party carried, they also equipped themselves with the hatchets, axes, and knives that the Jesuits had brought with them from, from Havana. This engraving from the late 17th century shows Don Luis killing the leader of the mission, Father Juan Bautista de Segura. Led by Governor Menendez, the Spanish came looking for Don Luis the following year, but couldn't find him. He had seemingly seemingly disappeared without trace into the forest. Now, I have devoted some time to describing Pacacaneo Don Luis's history because I believe it to be part of a continuous narrative of Indian Powhatan resistance that spans a century from the mid 16th to the mid 17th centuries, rather than seeing this story of Don Luis as an interesting but ultimately disconnected story of a failed Spanish attempt to settle the region. Pachyconeo may have disappeared from view so far as the Spanish were concerned, but I don't believe he abandoned his people, the Powhatans. Instead, I think he played a key role in building the great Powhatan chiefdom the English encountered when they arrived in 1607. After all, he was the only prominent Indian from the region that we know of, to have traveled to Spain and New Spain, and then returned home. He understood, as I mentioned earlier, the power of Europeans and their terrible destructive capabilities. From his many conversations with Governor Menendez, he knew of the ambitions of the Spanish to conquer and convert his people, and all Indian peoples. And the same would be true, the same could be said of any other European invader, such as, the English. In other words, Pachycaneo Don Louis had seen the other side of the Atlantic, a very different shore, and knew what was coming. English commentators who described the creation of the Powhatan chiefdom in the last quarter of the 16th century thought that Opikankano's brother, Chief Powhatan, was the principal instigator and this may well have been true, but it's only partly the truth. The beginnings of the chiefdom in the mid-1570s, shortly after the killing of the Jesuits and Governor Men- Menendez intrusion, suggests a key reason to unify the disparate tribes of the region, some three dozen of them, was to better defend themselves from Spanish or other European invaders. And who better, who better to advise, help and guide Powhatan than Pachikineo? And this is uh, the point I'm going to underline at this uh, moment. The English called him Opie Kankano. In other words, this isn't, Pachikineo is not an advisor. Uh, he's actually Opie Kankano. This is what I believe. Consequently, when Captain John Smith confronted Opie Kankano in the early years uh, of the English colony, he had absolutely no idea who he was dealing with and neither did any other English leader of that time or afterwards. And their ignorance, not to say arrogance, was to prove costly, especially later when Opie Kankano had succeeded Powhatan, Chief Powhatan, and was fully in control of the chiefdom. I'll come back to that point in a moment. So, in my view, we can better make sense of the tactics employed by Opie Kankano in 1622. He studiously avoided attacks on English fortified positions. Jamestown is the, is the only example, and that, of course, being from the river. He avoided open field battles where English cannon and musket fire would inflict devastating losses on his warriors. The key to his strategy was to find ways to get inside the palisade and then attack. So the twin elements of subterfuge and surprise guided his strategy. Hence his many years of reassuring English leaders of his peaceful intentions, and his eventual declaration that he would convert to the Church of England, which encouraged the English to further let down their guard at the very moment, and it is literally the very moment, he was about to launch the attack. Now, just factor back, sort of go back to Pachicaneo and Don Luis in Santo Domingo. That's where Don Louis converts to Catholicism. That's where he's uh, arguing that only he can achieve the conversion of Powhatan peoples in his own land, because he is a convert himself. And here's Opie Kankano doing exactly, exactly the same thing in 1621, just a few months before the great attack is uh, launched. Now, there's one, last, uh, there's one last chapter before I um, come to the conclusion of this presentation. And it, I think, gives further evidence of just what a remarkable warrior Opie Kankano was. He had been gravely wounded uh, in fighting during 1623, so the following year after the uh, great attack. In fact, he'd been poisoned, and as far as we know, he'd been shot as well. So, they really did try to finish him off. He disappears from view again um, for maybe seven or eight years, but when he reappears, the entire complexion of Virginia society had changed. There were new leaders. There were many more settlers, about 5,000 settlers by 1630. And the settlements had expanded along the James River southwards, as well as along the York River. And the York River is where Opikankano resided. But he chose not to confront the English initially. And in fact, he uh, signed a peace treaty with the then governor in the 1630s, Sir John Harvey, and remained aloof from, from the English. Had he given up? But then, in the early 1640s, hearing news of the outbreak of civil war in England, Opie Kankano made his last attempt to expel the English from his lands. Now, by this time, he's in his nineties, but but he's he's still leading um, still leading these attacks, or at least uh, orchestrating them. Once again, the key to the plan was to build a powerful alliance of tribes and to maintain secrecy. The attack was launched on April the 18th, 1644, and approximately 500 settlers were killed during that that attack and subsequently. Most of those who died Um, were in plantations along the south side of the James River and the upper York River. But what is uh, also uh, almost incredible is that he apparently tried to forge a mid-Atlantic alliance of Potomac River tribes, Susquehannas, and others. And we know this from a ship that arrived in Massachusetts from Virginia in mid-May, bringing news of, quote, a great massacre lately committed by the natives upon the English there. Mariners of the ship recounted that a Powhatan captive had informed them they did it because they saw the English take up all their lands and would drive them out of the country. And they took this opportunity for they understood that they, the English, were at war in England. An incredible um, assertion. Indians within 600 miles, the captive said, were confederate together to root out all the strangers from their countries. 600 miles encompassed Indian peoples in conflict with the English, the Swedes and Dutch from Virginia to New York. Now, I've got to uh, confess, there's no other evidence that that supports this alliance, this pan-Indian alliance of the mid-1640s. But it's at least conceivable, in my view, that Kankano's attack prompted discussions among other tribes, other peoples, singly or collectively, about resisting the growing numbers of Europeans arriving on their shores. 1644 war did not last long. Despite coming close to success, Opie Kankano was captured by Governor Sir William Barclay two years later and taken to Jamestown, where soon after he was shot in the back by one of his guards at the jail where he was held. And so died one of the greatest warrior chiefs in American history. And this is truly a grim slide. Um, it's the only image I can find, and I've looked far and wide for, for an image of the death of Opie Kankano at Jamestown in 1646. And this, from the late 19th century, New York Public Library, um, is the best I could come up with. A rather patronizing image that doesn't show anything of the violence that befell the great chief in his last moments. So, my uh, central argument this evening uh, and in my book is that Pakikineo and Opie Kankano were one and the same person. But uh, have I offered you enough proof? Isn't much of the foregoing uh, circumstantial, even fanciful, wishful thinking? Is there any direct evidence? Um, well, I. I thought that I had a pretty good case, even without the evidence I'm going to show you. Um, For a start, Opikankano was born in the mid-1540s, and we know that from contemporary sources. When he died in 1646, he was near 100 years old. That's what the contemporary sources tell us. With Pachikaneo, we do not have any indication of when he was born. But he was taken from the Chesapeake Bay in 1561, and the Spanish tended to abduct, and he certainly was abducted. There's no way he would have gone aboard the ship and stayed on it, um, against, um, unless he, he uh, was abducted. So. He was abducted in 1561. He would have been about 15 or so, as I mentioned, which would put his birth date, again, round about the 1540s. Pakikineo was, was from somewhere, uh, as I've suggested, taken somewhere near the confluence of the James and Chickahominy. And that's an area where Opikankano came from, more or less, from Pamunkey lands. But then we have we have two pieces of further evidence. And um, I'd like to think this is the clincher. I don't usually put quotes up in a slide. I mean, you know, it's meant to be an image, but here we are. But I think these are sufficiently important to, to warrant putting up on the screen. Don't know if you can see it at the back though. Matt? Not really. So, so, um, the first one is from Colonel Francis Morrison, uh, one of the royal commissioners sent to Virginia in 1676 to investigate the rebellion led by Nathaniel Bacon that takes his name. And he commented that during the great attack of 1644, the governor at that time, Sir William Barclay, had fought against quote no less a war captain than he who had conquered all along from Mexico thither the Indian war captain Morrison referenced was without doubt oppieikancano he's left unnamed, but there's no other war captain um, that, that uh, he could have met met meant but the pertinent part of, of the letter is his description of the chief having fought his way all the way from mexico thither of course 30 years later the historian robert beverly wrote of Opicankano, and robert beverly took a great deal of um, notice of indian peoples and their oral histories so this isn't a uh, english fabrication of what took place he's really trying to record the local peoples and what they told him then he says opikankano is called brother of powhatan but by the indians he was not so esteemed for they say he was a prince of a foreign nation and came to them from a great way and from the southwest and by their accounts he he continues beverly continues we suppose him to have come from the spanish indians somewhere near mexico Once again, the connection between Opie and Mexico is explicit. And I don't know of any other uh, Indian warrior, Indian chief, that makes these connections in the way that they're uh, made here, apparently. So, I rest my case. And thank you very much for listening to me this evening. (laughs) And I've been told to uh, remind everyone in the audience um, that if you'd like to ask a question, and I hope you will, that we have microphones um, down here at the front. Uh, we're recording this, but um, but even so, you might want to <laughs> ask a question, so please feel free. And if not, uh, if not, I'm gonna consider I've covered all bases here and I've convinced you. Right, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got a gentleman here, there we are.
0: The reference to Colonel Morrison and the war captain that he was speaking of, could that have been Powhatan since he was such a prominent figure?
1: Um, well, Powhatan, Chief Powhatan um, died in 1618, um, and that's when <laughs> sorry <laughs> I didn't mention it um, and that's pretty much when Opikankano takes over as paramount chief um, and that's why I think um, well I think it's actually likely that the Opie Kankano had conducted a coup against his brother if he was his brother kinsman um, sometime earlier by 1614 Powhatan disappears from, from view of the English, and increasingly they're doing business with Opie Kankano. So um, I don't know there was a, lo- a lot of love lost be- between them, put it like that. Uh, yeah, so it has to be Opie Kankano. Yeah, there's a gentleman down down here.
0: Um, yeah. In your Jamestown book, you kind of hemmed and hard about this connection. So is this information you found since you wrote that
1: book? Uh, you're quite right. In a land as God made it. Um, I, I, I wasn't so clear about what what, what was going on. Uh, yes, I have discovered new evidence and uh, particularly where the Jesuits ended up and also the um, Colonel Francis Morrison which is in colonial office papers. It was actually first cited many, many years ago, um, and um, a historian from early, the early 20th century, um, uh, who uh, was a terrific historian and who who quotes this, uh, Baker. Uh, and so I've uh, looked at the original and looked at the context of the letter yeah, I think uh, that that led me in this direction, and yeah, you know, I, I tend to think a lot of historians—I'm one of them—will uh, want to be detectives. Uh, we don't like the gory stuff. It, it's, um, yeah, I'm reading out the bloody battles that took place, but I'm not uh, physically investigating them. So, but we nevertheless we want to be detectives, and once you, in my experience, once you get a clue. And this was a big clue. Morrison's um, statement. Um, I just thought it beggars belief to think that there was another Indian um, that that, uh, that corresponds with Opicancano's experiences. So just think of it this way: there are two sets of source materials from the Spanish side. There's the great archives of um, the um, archive of the Indies in Seville the archives in Samanka. Um the Spanish were even more assiduous than the English at keeping records so the, the, these are fantastic repositories and we're bound to learn more as time goes on they're becoming more and more uh, of those records that are being digitized and so on so there's one tradition there and it tends to be um, those experts in Spanish history and Spanish America who focus on that side of the equation and then there are the English sources and some of the best materials of any Virginia early Virginia certainly colonial Virginia period st- um, stem from this period of around about 1600 through to um, the 1620s so It's really a question of bringing those two traditions together and trying to look at it holistically uh, and then having these clues to to guide us. Um, This is what uh, convinced me. And it's an interpretation, I should warn you, that many historians um, wouldn't give me the time of day (laughs) to be frank, uh, in that they don't see it as credible. But I'd rather flip that and say i don't think it's credible that there were two Indians both taken from the Chesapeake, same age from the same area, and they uh, and they're not the same person, especially when you 've got these quotes. can we have two last questions
0: Sure um, this <laughs>
1: Gentleman there I want to get you'd like to get you in if I may
0: oh, you're ready for mine. Thank yeah. you. It looks to me that the names are the same if you you only have phonetics and we don't know pronunciation I think that their names are the same so I think that adds to your story
1: um, I don't know if we've got any Spanish specialist language specialists in the audience um, but uh, if we have perhaps you can guide me on this because my understanding of Spanish I just gave you the name I didn't give you the sentence the sentence that his name is embedded in um, the, the word before it ends with a vowel uh, and my understanding of Spanish is that you couldn't have another vowel so in other words um, if if it was an A or an O it's not going to be an E but an O or an A uh, you would have a pachyconeo. Um I, I can't prove that but I but if you think about the um, syllables going on there and the cadence of it, Pakikineo, and then opie Kankano. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think there are similarities. Not something I could prove though. I'd want to go to an expert for that. But thank, thank you. you for the question. Thank you, sir. I, I don't want to take you off this subject and go back to something else, but <laughs> I've always um, accepted the assertion that if opie Kankano had been more successful in 1622, that would have been the end of the company's investment and attempts. But um, was the draw of tobacco and the tobacco industry at that point that was becoming very popular in England strong enough to send the company back? Yes, and, yeah. Do you think that they yeah. that the um, were being too quick to say that would have been the end or do you think they would have tried? Oh, I think if they had captured Jamestown and destroyed it and destroyed the English leaders, I think the symbolic defeat, there's, there's shock shame and suffering uh, in uh, in London at the news. Um, on April 22nd, a month after the attack, uh, the Virginia Company sponsors a sermon uh, in one of the London churches um, that gives thanks for Virginia and its great abundance and bounty, um, not knowing that four weeks earlier the, the colony had, had lost Thirty percent of its people, and the destruction was enormous. Um, so I think if Jamestown had been lost, and uh, Sir Francis Wyatt or and the other leaders uh, had been killed, that would have that might have been it. But you are right in stressing the enormous success of tobacco, and of course, tobacco has been grown in England at the same time. It's an industrial crop. It's being grown in the back streets of London. If you've got a third of an acre or half an acre, you can grow tobacco there and push into the markets. You could, you could earn a living from that. So most counties in England by the mid 17th century are also growing, that have some tobacco growing. So much so that the English um, monarchy had to stamp it out because they wanted to get a monopoly of virginia tobacco it's all about money uh, but uh, yeah the tobacco was critical but thanks again thanks. and thank you all